I hope you have your Bible with you today. If not, uh, our ushers are passing some out, so go ahead and raise your hand and they'll get a Bible to you so that you have God's Word in front of you there as we study it together. They've also got some note sheets and pencils to pass out for you. We're in the third chapter of Hosea, this Old Testament book of God's redeeming love. And so uh, we hope that you can open up there and be ready to go. Um, As you find your place in the text there, a real quick announcement, our food pantry had a lot of food left over yesterday, a great deal of bread, and uh, several cheesecakes and some other desserts that are up in the refrigerator in the fellowship hall. So if you'd like something sweet to take home, be a blessing to your family, please go ahead and, and take one of those. Um, we will get more stuff on Thursday and Friday, and we'd rather it not just sit here through the week with no one to eat it. So help yourself to those cheesecakes and to that bread, and, and uh, hopefully that'll be a blessing to you. And, uh, and so, uh, we, we, yeah, we hope that you'll enjoy it. Have you ever had the privilege of watching a master chef carefully and skillfully prepare a meal in front of you? Uh, There are so many factors that play into creating a dish that's delicious, that's beautiful, that engages the senses, that is unique and memorable. Uh, You won't get it by watching me cook, I tell you that much. I'm really good at microwaving food and making top ramen. That's about the extent of it. But if you've seen somebody who has skills in that area, it's, it's a sight to behold. And that kind of creation, something so delicious, doesn't usually start in the kitchen. The right ingredients, of course, have to be purchased at the store before you can even start cooking those ingredients. But even before you go to the shop for those ingredients, there's got to be a plan. There's got to be a recipe, right? A chef has got to know what direction he's taking this meal in. A great deal of preparation has to happen before the dish is even cooked. As one who doesn't really cook very often, there are steps to the process that are vital to the end product, but that don't seem to play a purpose at the time that they're done. Uh, For instance, when somebody adds yeast to dough, that doesn't immediately make a difference in the lump. You don't see that change what you're putting together, but in time, that yeast makes a difference, does it? Uh, If you don't put that that yeast in, the dough is going to remain flat. It's not going to puff up and the texture of whatever you're making is going to turn out flat. It's not going to chew the way it's supposed to. And so you can't leave out critical steps like that, even if they don't seem right away to be perfectly necessary in the moment. It might be helpful as we try to understand the authority that God wields over time and over history to think about God himself as a kind of divine master chef who with great skill, with stunning vision, with perfect timing, is preparing an unforgettable dish in the form of redemptive history. There are no wasted ingredients in this dish. And there are often steps that to us, watching God work from the outside, we don't quite understand what He's doing or why He's doing it. But over the course of time, we might begin to see the reasons why a chef adds a little salt at this particular juncture. Or why he sets the dish aside for a short amount of time to let it rest or rise. Every action plays a purpose. Everything a skilled chef does serves his end goal of producing a dish that will be an expression of his skills. And the same is true of Yahweh. Everything he brings about through the course of history is carefully intended to accomplish and express his truth and his love. I think that mindset would help us, especially as we read this passage from the Old Testament today. While each book, each psalm, each history was written in an immediate historical context, which certainly informs how we understand what was written, 
we must not lose track of the fact that the Bible is not a scattered collection of loosely related books. It is one book authored by the Holy Spirit of God. That is a big picture goal that is working towards accomplishing the redemption of mankind for the glory of God. And so as we learn from the book of Hosea, we benefit from understanding the story within its own place and time. For instance, we can't ignore that the setting of the book is in the northern kingdom of Israel. That's going to play a, a really important role, especially the last two verses that we're going to read today. We can't ignore the, that the setting of the book uh, has positioned a people who have been disobedient to the Lord and, and in, incites God's reaction to that disobedience. How is he going to deal with the fact that they have not been living in covenant? This book is written during the last half of the 6th century B.C., at a time when God had shown great patience but was preparing to expose the unfaithfulness of his covenant people in a very emphatic way. So we need to know all those details. Those details point historically to a right understanding of the text. But we also must not lose track of the big picture story that Hosea is placed within. God's end goal is not just to reunite the northern and southern kingdoms. God will do much more than that in time. God's goal is to defeat sin, to have victory over death, to redeem his people from their wicked rebellion, and to bind them near to him forever, to make a way for them to bear God's image rightly and to enjoy him for eternity through his relationship that he has with them through redemption. So without forgetting about God's lofty end goal, let us approach the third chapter of Hosea this morning. We are blessed to be able to watch the Lord reveal himself and his work in such a way that it directly impacts Hosea and his wife Gomer. We've talked about how their relationship is a microcosm of God's relationship with Israel. And so we're also going to see how that relationship illustrates the northern kingdom of Israel and how they are interacting with their God. But we're also going to see how it sets the stage for the final product of God's people um, freed from their sin by the work of Jesus Christ. To accomplish all of that, the Holy Spirit uses a specific literary technique. It's a, a framework of types and shadows. Now, we've mentioned types and shadows from the pulpit before, but I want to just give a little refresher in case it's not something you've been thinking about much recently. As students of the Bible, we should commit ourselves to reading the Bible in specific ways. Uh, first of all, we should approach the text and take it for what it says and assume that it is speaking literally until there's a reason for us not to think that it's speaking literally. There are times when it is clear that something in the text is going beyond the surface, and God expects his people to pick up on it. Just to, uh, Jesus to the disciples uh, asks, do you not understand many times when he says a parable or, or shares a metaphor, an illustration? He wants us to know what these illustrations and these metaphors mean. And so it, it is to us to, to strive to take what God tells us in the scripture. If we identify something symbolic or metaphorical, to try to understand what God intends by that metaphor. He uses similes. He uses parables. He uses object lessons, poetic word pictures. There are a variety of ways that God speaks outside of the, the realm of literal word to meaning function in order to help us have a greater understanding of his intentions. And so when we speak of shadows and types, we're talking about a literary device whereby God gives us a picture that points forward to a greater expression of an idea. A shadow is an aspect of a story that clearly anticipates and points forward to a greater expression of a similar idea later in the story. Uh, 
that later and greater expression can sometimes be called a type. Uh, shadows are sometimes referred to also as anti-types, as sort of a subtype of the type to come. So when we look at a shadow, we're not looking at a one-to-one. A shadow possesses the shape of the one that casts it, doesn't it? If I saw a shadow on the ground, I might be able to make out which one of you that shadow is because there's enough information there, that I, and I know you all well enough that I might be able to say, I think that's Jared's tall shadow that I'm seeing here. But it's not an exact one-to-one of the people that we see. A shadow doesn't have all the details within it. It's basically a silhouette, an outline. So, so too does a shadow give us an impression or a picture of the thing to come, but it doesn't give us every detail of that thing. Analogies in the scripture are there, and they are important. That doesn't mean that we get to look at the scripture and just say, well, I'm going to interpret everything here as an analogy. I'm going to interpret this all as a, it's just a framework by which I will creatively interpret my own deeper meanings into the text. That's never our goal as Christians. Our goal is always to try to understand what the original author meant to his original audience. And we know that beyond the pens of the apostles and the prophets, the original author of all scripture is God himself. So types and shadows are a tool used by God in order to prepare his covenant people. As he uses these shadows and types, he's giving them a portion of the story so that when that story begins to unravel in greater ways later on, they won't be entirely caught off guard. They'll be able, be able to identify that this is indeed God's providential hand. He is now showing us more of what he hinted at in the past. He uses shadows and types to emphasize important themes so that you see a small picture early in God's revelation to man, and then as revelation progresses, you begin to see more, greater details of that, and it's almost like a, an appetizer to the main dish that God is, is putting together. It complements what is to come. He also uses these shadows to introduce ideas in a manner that limited man can process them. Many of the things God has to show to us are amazingly complex in their scope. And so God in his mercy has brought things down to a level that we can understand them. He has condescended to us in his language. And since man learns analogically, we learn one thing by relating it to something else we've already learned, God uses that kind of language to help us to understand him as he reveals himself through his word. And he also uses these shadows and types to display his sovereignty over history. I, I think it is a wonderful blessing for us to see pictures of what God is going to do and then hundreds of years later, in great detail, God makes those things unfold just as he said that he would. Who else has control over history like that? Who, who alive today has sovereign control over what's going to happen in 100 years or 200 years? We can barely keep a handle on the time we have in front of us now. But God in his sovereignty knows what will occur and nothing will stop it from occurring if it be his will. So let's consider a couple brief examples of this so we can, can know how God has used this in other ways, and then we'll apply it to the text God is helping us to work on today. I want us to think of Genesis 6 through 7 for a moment. What happens in that very early text in Scripture? Well, after the creation of the world, it did not take long for the, the same kinds of sins that Adam and Eve fell into uh, to filter down into their offspring and their progeny. The world began to grow more and more calloused and cold to the God of creation to the point where everyone just began to do what was right in their own eyes. They forsook the things that God had revealed to them. They stopped thinking about God as Lord over all things and they began to live however their hearts desired. It was a time of great wickedness, a time of great lawlessness. And so what did God do? 
God spoke to one of the few who remained faithful to him. He continued to have an honoring heart towards Yahweh. He spoke to Noah. And he said, Noah, I will have you build an ark, a great giant boat. And this is at a time in the history of the world where our environment was very different than it is today. Uh, There were not rains upon the land like there are today. There was a mist that rose up in the mornings that would wet things and feed the, the plants. But there had never been a great torrential downpour. There had never been a flood as God intended to bring upon the earth. But the wickedness of man warranted extreme action. And so God, in his providential plan, tells Noah to build this great big ark. And his family, those who also believed the words of God, were to enter into that ark when the time was right. They were to bring into that ark with them pairs of animals that God in his divinity was able to direct to come to that boat and to enter into that, that safe haven. And then when the rains began and the water began to fill the earth and the, and the levels began to rise and it quickly became apparent that no living thing had a, a means to survive this flood, there was only a handful of people left who were safe and they were the people who were in God's boat, in the provision that he had provided through Noah. Now, when you read in the New Testament, when you see the the biblical authors who are exposed to the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we learn that that ark was actually a type of something greater. The ark was a very early proclamation that God had a way for us to escape the consequences and the wrath of our sin. Rather than be judged forever as we have earned to be judged, rather than experience the wrath of God as we rightly should, God in His mercy and grace was going to make a way through His divine will and His control over time to preserve us through that. And so the ark, the ark was in a sense a picture of Christ. Those who are now in Christ by faith, those who abide in Jesus and His perfect work, we are now safe from the judgment to come. You know, the rainbow is not the only covenant sign in that story. The ark is a type of Christ and God's provision for graceful salvation. So those who are in Christ today by faith know that there is a judgment coming, but they know that that judgment will not destroy them. It will will pass over them in a sense because they are safe within Christ. So you see how the boat, the ark, presents a very early picture of Jesus. It doesn't give us every detail of who he will be or what he will do, but it helps to set the people's minds and hearts on the mode by which God will express His grace. Another example, in Numbers 21, having been freed from captivity, the people of Israel, God's chosen, were formerly slaves in Egypt. Now they've been set free from that and they've been brought out into a wilderness. They are on their way to a place of promise. God is delivering them to a holy land, a place that will be theirs forever. But they're not there yet. And the people of God who have just experienced the grace of God quickly forget what a great work God has just done. And they begin to grumble and moan and complain to Moses, the man through which God is speaking. God punishes the people of Israel. He does so by sending poisonous snakes into their camp. You might remember reading about this in Numbers 21. If not, maybe pick the Bible up this week and just read through that as a refresher. But many began to be bitten by these poisonous snakes. They suffered from the venoms that that was injected into them, and many of them died. And so they cried out 
with remorseful hearts, sorry and sad that they had complained and grumbled. They begged Moses to plead on their behalf to God and ask for mercy. God provides a remedy. Seeing their repentance, he tells Noah to take a staff and to fix upon that staff a bronze serpent. Now, if you don't think about the whole scope of the scriptures, that seems very random in the moment. Why would God tell Moses to make the image of a serpent, put it on a pole, and to raise it in the sky? And then he says, all who look upon the serpent, all who put their eyes upon it, they'll be spared from the wrath of these poisonous venomous snakes that have invaded the camp. It, it seems almost crazy. But later on in the New Testament, we realize that, that Jesus was typified in this shadow of the serpent upon the stake. Jesus, who had no sin in him, became sin for us so that we might not be judged for our sin. And what did they do to execute Christ and to put the wrath of God on him? They nailed him to a cross and they lifted him up into the sky. And those who faithfully put their eyes upon Christ and trust in the work that he has done and believe that the one whom God has provided and supplied is the only means by which we can be saved, as we read in our opening passage today in, in John uh, chapter 14, if they believe that it is only Christ who can save them, then God will indeed save them. It's not a work of their own that sets them free, but it is the work of God. And so this staff and this snake on a pole represents Christ becoming a curse for us so that we might be let free from the curse that we, had, uh, that we had earned through our sin. You see these shadows and these types and how they are expressed in, in greater and more perfect ways as God reveals his intentions throughout history. So this literary device that God uses throughout the Old Testament is utilized beautifully today in the third chapter of Hosea. Today we're going to see the unmistakable relationship between Hosea's love articulated to Gomer and Christ's love articulated to the elect through Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles open to chapter 3, that was a very long intro of sorts, but we're going to tackle this whole chapter today. It is only five verses long, and so I will begin reading in, chapter, in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also will be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. As we begin chapter 3 here, the story shifts back to the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. The Lord directly addresses Hosea, who starts to speak again in the first person tense for the next few verses. This third chapter is... is pretty short, breaks down into four major components. First, we're going to see Yahweh's instruction to Hosea. Next, we're going to see Hosea responding obediently to that instruction. Thirdly, Hosea is going to reinforce the covenant that he enters back into with Gomer. And then fourthly, their relationship will be explained as a template for how God will deal with Israel. 
So let's start with the fourth of those points. Yahweh issues a bold command to his prophet. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Now, before we get too deep into expanding on what this means, uh, there is a textual question that we have to consider here. If you read scholars who have studied this passage, there's a kind of a a more modern interpretation of this text, which sees Gomer not being, or Hosea not being sent back to his wife Gomer, but rather seeing Hosea instructed, having left Gomer behind, to marry another woman of ill repute. Those who advocate for this point of view point out that Gomer's name is never explicitly mentioned here in chapter 3. The command to marry a woman may seem strangely vague. Why did he just not say, go and marry Gomer again? Uh, If Gomer represents Israel, then the idea of Hosea turning away from her and embracing a different love could represent in some ways the idea of, of God embracing the Gentile nations. And that appeals to some who see the New Testament church as a people who have replaced God's covenant people, Israel. But the idea of what has come known as replacement theology runs into plenty of problems when we read our New Testament carefully. First of all, if you were getting, to get into Romans chapter 11, where Paul is expanding on the importance of the heritage of, of Judaism uh, as it builds upon this fulfillment of Christ in Christianity, he speaks of Israel as a root, an essential, important root that God has planted that has borne a tree that bears fruit. Now, not every branch of that tree has borne fruit. He speaks about how much of Israel has grown numb to the truth of God and has stopped bearing fruit for his glory. And so he talks about how those unfruitful branches will be cut off and thrown into the fire. For those who truly do not have faith in God are not true Israel, even if Israelite blood runs in their veins. And then he begins to speak about how those who are Gentiles, who were not originally a part of the root, will be grafted into this tree. Those branches that were cut off will now leave room for those from the Gentile nations to be grafted in, joined to this tree, just as agriculturally it is possible to graft branches from one tree into another, and that tree branch can now take from the nutrients of the root of the healthy tree and can flourish. And so Romans 11 teaches us that if we are part of the New Testament church, we are not a new independent project from Israel, but we are being grafted into those promises that God made originally to Abraham and to his covenant people. Distinctly, Israelite covenant language is often applied to the church. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, where God is speaking through the apostle Peter, and he says that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood unto God, a special people set aside for his grace. This is all deriving from Old Testament passages. And so it doesn't seem as though God has made a a, a strict cut with Israel and has put them in the past and has started something completely new. Rather, we have a new iteration of an old covenant, a better iteration of it that includes faithful Jews as well as faithful Gentiles. The Apostle Paul, by the way, continually advocates for the salvation of his countrymen. And the mission of the early church was never to the exclusion of the Jews. Even the Gentile-dominated churches were typically started by faithful Jewish Christians who believed that Jesus was the, the Messiah and therefore the fulfillment of their faith. So replacement theology is not the way we should look at the New Testament, the idea that God has gotten angry with Israel and has cast them away and they're gone forever and now we're a new Israel. Rather, we should recognize that God has one people. And as he has opened up the new covenant to the Gentiles, 
we are now joined with those believers throughout, uh, throughout history who have trusted in the Lord God and been saved by His grace. The fact that Yahweh tells Hosea to go and love again without any additional instruction would indicate that he is starting a new relationship uh, without indicating that he has started some new relationship with another woman shows us that he is likely still talking about the same woman. And it indicates the burden of proof lies on those who want to think in a different direction than faithful Christians who have been interpreting this text for 2,000 years regarding chapter 3. The radical redemption on display here is radical because it has to do with the prophet loving the very wife who failed to love him faithfully. She has been overtly disgraceful to Hosea. The covenant promises that the northern kingdom had made with God have been completely and utterly uh, disgraced by their actions. And so Hosea has every legal right to turn and walk away from his wife, just as God had every legal right to walk away from Israel. But because Hosea is is commissioned with exhibiting a godly love to his bride, one that is mightily faithful and stands out in its uniqueness and power, the object of his love is to be this very woman who has done him such harm, this very woman who does not deserve a godly kind of love. So let us begin by acknowledging what a difficult calling Hosea has received. How how incredibly hard it must be for him to hear the words of God. He has already obeyed God once. He has gone and made a family with this woman. He's born children to her. And he's had to advocate woe over the northern kingdom of Israel, even through the names that he gave to his children. She has forsaken him. She has loved other men. The marriage bed is no longer sacred between them. He's been faithful to God. And yet God says, I'm not done with you, Hosea. It is not yet time for you to experience relief through you your sinful wife is going to experience relief. This is not an easy calling, and and it, it, it can't be because Hosea is acting as this shadow of a Savior to come. He is acting in a representative fashion to point us towards the love of God that will come to us through the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Hosea might have wanted to cash it in, but God's specific instruction doesn't allow for that. Friends, there might be a time when God clearly calls you to endure something difficult, something that challenges what you value most, something that seems to cause you to lose a source of great joy or comfort in your life. That might be the loss of a loved one. God might call you to endure a work situation that is absolutely tense and and not peaceful for you. You might be called to face deep sickness in your physical self. You might have to endure a battle with criticism from those who formerly loved you. You might have to put up with a delay of justice where it seems that everything that should be happening is not happening and no one's doing anything about it. God calls his people to this. And anytime you find yourself thinking, God, this is too hard. There is no way this this could be from you. There's no way you would have your people endure something so challenging. I want you to stop and I want you to think for a minute and ask yourself, why do I think that way? Why do I think that this is something God would never allow his people to endure? Ask yourself, Christian, do you deserve something better from God? Does he owe you an easy path, a life with nothing but blessing and smooth sailings? Is that something that you have earned through your righteousness? I think each of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would have to answer in the negative. 
God doesn't owe me a great big family with support and love and peace. He doesn't owe that to me. God does not owe me a job where I I make continually more and more money as time goes by and there's never any threat of being fired or losing my position. God doesn't owe that to me. God does not owe me children or a marriage. God does not owe me a nation that is wise and listens to the word of God. Those are all blessings that God may choose to give to me. But why would I demand better from God if it's not something he owes to me? Ask yourself, has he promised you that your time here on earth will be easy? He certainly has not. God, in fact, has told us that we live in a world where sin still reigns rampant, where sin is widespread and is increasing. Doesn't his word, in fact, prepare us for the very prospect that those who belong to him will certainly experience hardship and trials? So do not let the mentality of the world that has a crooked vision of who God really is, don't let it inform your attitude towards God. The world says, oh, God is just this great big being in the sky who loves everybody and gives you what you want if you do good things. Read your Bible. That's not God. It's not. Read your Bible and you will see that God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. You'll see that your salvation, if you have it, is not something you've earned, but it's a gift that he has given you graciously, a gift that you could work for the rest of eternity and never pay him back for. So if God determines to set you through a trial and to put you on a difficult path, rather than being frustrated and wondering why God hasn't blessed you in ways that you don't deserve to be blessed, seek the scripture, think of the examples of other saints who have walked through things like this and then come to the terms with the fact that Maybe God is doing this for your good. And maybe there is some great blessing in it that you can't see yet. But he's the chef. He's the one mixing the ingredients together. And if you take any part of your life in isolation, it might not taste very good, but mixed into the whole of the story of grace that he is writing into your story, this is going to be a wonderful masterpiece when it's done. It is a difficult calling for Hosea, but Hosea is not being asked to do it apart from God's strength and patience and provision. He's asked to do it in that provision. The fact that God has, has to tell Hosea to go and to love his estranged wife indicates that there is a separation between them. They're not together right now. There's a gap between this man and the one that he is called to love in covenant. And Hosea is the one who's expected to bridge that gap. Hosea, you go. She has run from you. She has forsaken you, but you don't accept that. You go. You go where she's at. She will not repent. She will not return to you. So you step up and you go and you seek her out. You initiate this redemption and reconciliation. Already you should be noting the parallels between Hosea's charge and the covenant of redemption that is our joy. It is our reason for rejoicing in God's great provision. As he ordained Hosea, the father ordained for the son to go, Jesus Christ to come to this earth, to come where we're at, to enter into our world where sin abounds because we weren't seeking him. We didn't want him. We were wrapped up in our sin, tangled up in it so tightly that we could not get away. Christ had to come where we were at to redeem us. That strangely familiar feeling when you see the echoes of one passage in another, that is the beauty of shadows and types, where we can see the, the handiwork of God in the, this passage in Hosea, and we can see it again in the Gospels when it plays out in a fuller and more perfected way in Christ. 
Now, if the link between unfaithful Gomer and unfaithful Israel is not explicit enough, the Lord removes all doubt that he's still using this marriage as a metaphor for the northern kingdom and their struggles with God. He says uh, that Hosea is to go and love his wife. In verse 1, he says, Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So when he says even as here, he's meaning in the same manner that God loves the children of Israel who have exhibited equivalently adulterous behavior towards their God to whom they should love exclusively. Did you pick up on the fickle nature of that last part of the verse one? That they have gone away to other gods and they have loved cakes of raisins. I was just listening uh, or watching some memes this week and, and somebody sent me one that said, uh, Raisin bran, it's a cereal so bad that you can add two scoops of raisins to it and somehow make it better, right? <laughs> we don't really have a high view of raisins, but I think this is put in here to help us see how fickle our love as human beings are. Uh, raisins often were uh, thought of as a celebratory food, and we've seen already that Gomer likes to run off to these festivals of worship and exuberance towards other gods, that she falls in love with these meals that they have at those things, and that she's willing to turn her back on her husband and to disgrace him just so that she could have the material fleeting trappings of the world. We see an example of this short-sightedness and the extreme impact it can have on people when we remember the book of, uh, of Genesis. And we think of Esau and Jacob, these twins who were born, one of which was a great sportsman uh, the firstborn who should have had the dignity of, of carrying on the family leadership when his father passed away. Uh, and then this, a second son, Jacob, who was not a man of the field, but was rather a man of the mind. Um, you might recall that Esau and Jacob were twins. And when they were born, Esau came out first. He was hairy, almost looked like a little man already. Some of you have, have seen your children. You've thought, man, this, this looks like a little man already. Esau came out and Jacob was holding the heel of Esau. Maybe a little indicator from us that as he came out second, he was right on the heels of his brother. And then as they grew, uh, we begin to see that Jacob, the younger brother, was very crafty, was very wise, and his mother began to devise a plan with him so that he might carry on the family heritage. Esau, being firstborn, had a legal right to twice the inheritance of the family. He was going to be the patriarch once his father Isaac passed away. But we read in Genesis 25 of an incident occurred where Esau gives something great and honorable and worthy and trades it for something so fickle. Genesis 25 verses 29 through 34 says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from, came in from the field and was exhausted. He'd been hunting and been tracking animals and been out for a long time with no success. Verse 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which is a term that's closely associated with the word red, red stew. He had red hair, a couple of parallels there. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Now, this isn't a very brotherly thing for Jacob to do, is it? No one is arguing here that Jacob was loving and kind in the way that he rescued his brother from being famished. He took advantage of his brother's weakness. But Esau should have known better. Esau should have been able to see past his current immediate circumstances and recognize that what Jacob was asking for was a price too far. Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. And unfortunately, Esau, in his exhaustion, can only think of his feelings in the moment. He cannot think of the dignity of upholding his family's name. Instead, he said, I'm about to die. 
Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. Friends, how little is offered to us in temptation of stepping away from our first love, God. How often are the sins that tempt us so fickle, so, so throwaway, like rosin, raisin cakes? What's the joy in that? And yet we allow our eyes to be caught by the temptations of the world. And rather than remember the great weight of God's affection for us, the great blessing of being near to him, we let these temptations of the world cause us to behave as if we're not even in covenant with him. Whatever treasure a dying world has to offer you is a dying treasure as well. Moth, thief, decay, everything that could tempt you away from God is going to burn in the end. None of that has the ability to satisfy you like God can, and yet we entertain the bargain. Gomer, of course, had done more than entertain the bargain. She had fallen hook, line, and sinker for the ways of the world and their petty trinkets. But she couldn't see her way out of that. And so God says to Hosea, go to her. And once you have gone to her, this is so powerful. He says, love her. Love her. Do you see the beauty in the command that Yahweh gives his prophet here? Love her. Don't just tolerate her. Don't just put up with her eternally. Love her. And Hosea's template for love is not the kind of love that human beings commonly give to one another. He tells his prophet how he's to love his estranged wife. Love her even in the same manner that God has loved the northern kingdom of Israel. With that kind of fervency, with that kind of power, with that kind of faithfulness and commitment. As those benefited from the blessing of the new covenant Revelation, we might think of Ephesians 5, 25-27 in this moment. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Today being Father's Day, it might be worth us taking a minute to think about how this applies to fathers. How do you get to the calling of fatherhood? Well, Lord willing, God grants you a wife, right? Lord willing, God blesses you and your wife with children. And so allow me to make a brief comment on how this picture of God's faithful covenantal love applies to dads. God's love for his bride is not, as the world wants to paint it, it's not a reckless love. It's not a love that just runs blindly after things. It's not a love that doesn't care about the consequences, but it is a relentless love. It is a love that does not quit. It is a love that does not give up in the face of adversity. And fathers, that's the kind of love we're to have to our wives. That's the kind of love we're to show to our children. God's love for his bride is not a selfish kind of love. It is powerfully selfless. It is a love that cares so deeply that it is willing to put the needs of another before itself. Even at the point of self-sacrifice, God is willing to do what is, what is necessary to preserve and sanctify his bride. Dads, your love for your wife is to be modeled after this love. Now, a couple of pastors uh, on Twitter that I keep an eye on sometimes have issued well-meaning warnings in the last week that I've been keeping a 
keeping an eye on things. That warning was urging pastors not to use Father's Day as an excuse to shellac dads and make them feel like they're failing at the task that they have been given by God. And that's good advice. Even those who proclaim and believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, from time to time do fall into this practical error of acting like the greatest responsibility in preaching is to tell people to be better people or to do better things. And we don't want to fall into that error. I fall into that error from time to time. And I don't want to make that mistake this morning. Christian husbands and dads, that includes you today, are called in a similar way that Hosea is called to love their wives with the kind of love that God has for his church. That's a tall order, but it's not impossible. And it shouldn't become a source of crushing discouragement to us. God is faithful. If he has called us to the task, he will provide the spiritual strength and the biblical wisdom to accomplish it. Hosea couldn't love Gomer this way apart from God's help. If he was called to do this under his own power, he would be called to failure. God was calling Hosea to do what only God could give him the strength to do. So rather than be discouraged or overwhelmed, do not lose sight of the fact that you can follow this pattern of love because this kind of love has been given to you by God. You've tasted of it. You've experienced of it if you're a believer. 1 John 4, 10 through 11, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You don't have to read your wife's mind and love her the way that she thinks she needs to be loved. Some guys always feel like a failure because they can't seem to exactly nail that picture of husbandry that their wife has somewhere deep in the recesses of their mind. You don't have to worry about that, men. You don't have to think up some creative new way to love, to love your wife that no one's ever done before so that you can be impressive and brag about it on social media. You don't have to do those things, men. Just love her with the love that Christ has loved you with. Just copy God. Just look to your Father and, and seek to be like Him. Watch Him closely and give to your wife the kind of patient understanding, generous love that you've already been given yourself from God. So first, we've seen Yahweh's bold command to Hosea. That's followed by, secondly, Hosea's obedient response to Yahweh. It says, so I bought her. And the command to purchase may indicate that Gomer has gotten herself entrapped in slavery. Hosea perhaps had to go and, and buy her out of a situation that she could not get herself out of. This is not an unreasonable way to look at this text. Hosea had cut her off from, from his provision, remember. We read in chapter 2 how he had been supplying for her wonderful things, blessed materials, and she had been given credit for that to her other lovers. She had disgracefully praised her adulterous relationships for giving her what was actually coming from her true husband. And so Hosea had stopped giving her those things. He had pulled his hands back and had allowed her to see how little she has apart from his protection and provision. So it's, it's not unreasonable to think that perhaps trying to make it on her own without her husband's support, she had fallen into slavery. Uh, in those times, slavery was not as we remember it being in, in American slavery or American history. The slavery of chattel slavery is different. Uh, they, they weren't talking about Hosea, Hosea's wife, Gomer, being stolen and put into slavery. Rather, because of her poor decisions and because she couldn't take care of herself, and because she had probably indebted herself because of this love for raisin cakes and other things of the world, it's very likely she got into such a deep debt that she had to sell herself to be a servant for a time in a household of somebody else. She had given up her freedoms to have her debts paid off. 
If it is a case that Gomer is a slave and being auctioned, then Hosea is then being commanded to go and publicly purchase her back. Now, the public nature of that scenario would have likely had the maximum impact in terms of his marriage being an object lesson, a metaphor for the way that he plans to redeem this northern kingdom, Israel. There could be a tie-in indeed to the price of the slave that we're told Hosea pays here. Though we don't know what a lethek is, historically that measure of, of weight has been lost. We're not sure how much that, that costs. If a homer and a lethek of common barley represents a portion of approximately 15 shekels of silver, then adding that to the other 15 shekels of silver he brought, we would be about 30 shekels of silver, which according to Exodus 21-32 was considered the reasonable price for a slave. If somebody uh, accidentally killed a slave or if they uh, had somehow done damage to someone's slave, then, then they would have to pay them a price for that. 30 shekels was considered the reasonable price. If the illusion is intentional, then it would serve as another shadow of things to come. Just as Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt and brought to a place of abundance and promise, so too will all of God's elect be purchased from the slavery of sin. The New Testament expands on this idea that unless we are Christ's, then we are under the, the, the destructive and tyrannical thumb of sin. It says in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Didn't we suffer from that foolish allegiance before Christ found us, church? Weren't we incapable of overcoming our sin? Weren't we constantly falling back into that same pit of despair? Didn't we have such little control over ourselves? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. The body that you have is not your body. Christ purchased your freedom from sin. So whereby he has set you free from that slave master, you now owe an allegiance to him. He is a good master. He is a father that cares for you. Just as Gomer was not to be purchased out of slavery so that she could just run off and do whatever she wanted to do, she was being purchased into a right relationship with, with Hosea, so too have we been purchased by the blood of Christ to now belong to a God who loves us and wants what is best for us. 1 Peter 1, 17-19, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So this, friends, is the expanded picture that's being hinted at here in the story of Hosea and Gomer. We are given a, a precursor that now as believers after the coming of Christ, we recognize has been expanded upon and fulfilled in his willingness to go and offer his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross for us. Through his blood, he has purchased our freedom. We no longer have to be slaves to sin if our faith is in him. He has washed us clean by his blood and set us free into a life of loving relationship with our God. So Hosea goes to Gomer, he purchases her freedom. But in order to love her in the way that he has been commanded to love her, in the way that God loves his people, Hosea must set their relationship back into proper order. 
And so the third point of our passage today is that Hosea reinforces the covenant that he has with his wife. He reinforces this covenant. And though Hosea buys Gomer as a slave, he does not buy her to be his slave. This is very important to understand, friends. He is redeeming her for holy purposes, not for unholy ones. Sinners are saved from their sin, not just to serve as petty slaves in the kingdom of heaven, but to serve as the object of God's gracious love. So in verse 3, forgiveness comes with a reiteration of the commands. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. Forgiveness is not permission to continue in sin. It is the crossroads at which we learn to hate our sin or it is not repentance in reality. So this idea that we are not being saved only to be a slave does not mean that we are given carte blanche to act as we wish. We are being saved into a relationship of order, a relationship of peace. And so Hosea sets the boundaries of that relationship. He sets the order of that relationship with his wife. So he'll know you're coming back to me, but you're not coming back to me to treat me like you did before. You're coming back to me to live in a a situation of mutual respect and love. There's a video circulating around right now of, of a shepherd in the field tending to his flock. And one of his sheep has somehow managed to fall into this deep, narrow trench that was dug into the property there. And so he's working really hard, trying with all his might to get this heavy sheep out of this, this ditch that it's wedged itself into. And the video's not very long, but you see how hard it is he has to labor. And he, your heart is glad as soon as he pops that animal out of that wedge and it's finally freed. But your, your happiness only lasts for a second because immediately the ecstatic lamb just leaps in the air and flops right back into a, the pit. Like five feet away, right? And you just see the arms of the farmer just drop and he just looks up like, what, I, what do I have to do? And this is, this is a wonderful kind of visual expression of what Christians do sometimes, right? What followers of Christ do is that God will, will through his word, reveal to us what is wrong, through the grace given to us in Christ, will give us the power to overcome, through the fellowship of the saints, will give us accountability and we'll have victory over a sin. And then what, we do, what do we do? We just leap into a different sin. Or over time, we leap back into our old sin before, and it's it's disgraceful to do that. God loves us too much to just let us run off and get into all this trouble on our own. He's going to continue to admonish our hearts. He's going to continue to insist that the relationship we have with Him is a covenant relationship, a relationship that has boundaries and borders and expectations. Man seems to have this great disdain for the law, though, so much so that they like to see the grace that God has given in the New Testament, and many will say, We don't have anything to do with the law anymore. The fact that Jesus has come means that we've been set free from the law. We're not free to live our lives however we choose so long as the blood of Jesus has washed our sins away. Where does this disdain from the law come from? There are several new covenant declarations that say things like we are freed from the law, we are dead to the law, we are no longer under it. But it's important for us to understand those declarations properly. Romans 7.4 is one such passage. It says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And so what does Paul say there? He says that we have died to the law. Now these words from Paul make it sound almost as if the requirements of the law no longer have any bearing upon us, which is true in terms of justification. Because that's what that passage is speaking about to begin with, the justification of the saints. We don't need the law to justify us. In fact, it cannot. The law is there for an entirely different purpose. 
It's there to show us that we cannot justify ourselves. As we fail the law of God, as we can't keep it perfectly, we have no choice but to turn our eyes to the one who can, to Jesus Christ. But these words from Paul go on as you read through Romans chapter 7. Do you remember what else is in that chapter? It is Paul's revealing confession that even as an apostle ordained by the Lord and filled with the Spirit, that he still struggles against his sin. And if law has no bearing on what we do, why would Paul describe himself as struggling against sin at all? There would be really no sin to sin if there is no law. Paul goes on to talk about how the thing he does not want to do, he does. The things he wants to do, he does not do. What is his hope? He says, thanks be to Christ Jesus. This is my hope. This is, the, this is where all of my confidence lies. Not in my ability to keep this law, but in Jesus Christ's ability to keep the law. And so Paul would not immediately go into the rest of Romans talking many points about how we need to honor the law and use the law as it is intended to be used if the law has no bearing on us anymore. We are not called to be antinomians, church. An antinomian is somebody who is anti, against, Noma is law, so an antinomian is one who believes there is no law in Christ Jesus, only the law of grace, which means that we can just do whatever we want to do. The law of grace is the thing that saves us. But the law that God has given to us in his word is still beneficial to us. It still serves a purpose. And what is that purpose? We'll get to that in just a second. Romans 6.15, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Listen to Paul's words himself. He says, by no means. May we never become an antinomian people who just behaves however they want to behave and then claims to have the name of Christ and so thinks that they're free from the, the judgment of sin. The law has no power to save, it, but, to save us, but it does not cease to be good once it is fulfilled. It remains an important help to the people of God and without it, our relationship with God who saved us would be an utter mess. Verse 3 of our passage today and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. There will be longevity to, our covenant, to this commitment. There will be no more violating the trust of this bond. And Hosea is not demanding anything of Gomer that he is unwilling to commit to himself. And why are these stipulations important? They're important because they were intended to guard this valuable relationship that Hosea is bringing Gomer back into. He wants this to last. And so this relationship has to have, it has to have defined boundaries and borders. Just like when we get married as human beings, we give vows to one another so that we know how we expect to behave in this new specific covenant relationship. When we get back to verses four and five of chapter three of Hosea, the prophet widens the lens again to shift our focus back onto the national significance of his prophecy. And so, uh, again, verses 4 and 5, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So our fourth and final point this morning as we wrap up, as Hosea has redeemed Gomer, so will Yahweh redeem Israel. He helps us to understand that this picture of marital fidelity that has been restored between Hosea and his wife Gomer will eventually be the picture of God's fidelity with his people and their fidelity with him. So Israel, the northern kingdom, will see the covenant more clearly one day. She will understand the covenant and will no longer fail to honor it. She will appreciate the covenant and hold no contempt 
for its terms, she will learn to live in this covenant. But before that time of realization, or before that time of restoration is realized, Hosea is clear with the nation that they will endure a dry time. They're going to go through a period such as Gomer just went through, a period of estrangement, a period of hurt. And during this dry season, two key characteristics that were the byproduct of a healthy bond between Yahweh and Israel will be suspended for a while. First of all, there will be no king or prince in Israel during that time. The Davidic style rule that God had used to be a blessing to the people will no longer be in place. And since the split between the northern and the southern kingdoms, they haven't experienced the joy of that blessing truthfully anyway. Not one of the kings that filled the throne of the northern kingdom had been from the line of David, which was a major theme in Hosea's prophecy, this confrontation of the synthetic split between the northern and the southern kingdoms that came about following Solomon's reign. If you, if you weren't here for our first, uh, or second, first or second sermons uh, in this series, you might want to go back and listen to that again. It talks about how so much of this prophetic book is dealing with the, the wrong split of the northern and the southern kingdoms. Their kings had been a compromise from day one in the north, and soon they wouldn't even enjoy this compromised version of kingdom, for Assyria would strip them of that luxury, and they would no longer be an autonomous nation. But they won't lose this forever, right? God cannot pull back the blessing indefinitely, for he is a God of promise. In 2 Chronicles 6.16, Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my laws as you have walked before me. So God had promised personally, David, that his offspring would one day fill the throne of, of the nation of God's people and would keep it for eternity. And of course, he was talking about Christ in that. That promise was made before the split. But he's going to eventually establish this throne once again according to the promises of the Davidic covenant and it's actualized in the coming of the Messiah. Do you remember the excited tone of the triumphal entry? We can read about it in Matthew 21 verse 9 where it says, In the crowds that went before him when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem before the week in which he gave his life on the cross, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There was great joy and exuberance. People were taking off their coats and laying them on the ground. They were breaking palm fronds off the tree and putting them on the ground as a signal that here was the king, the one that Israel had waited for for so long. There would finally be a restoration of the people of God and their sovereignty in, uh, in the nation. Jesus is prophesied descendant of David, of course. And his reign is going to continually, uh, continue perpetually forever. It may be hard for us to understand the significance of this moment when God has once again allowed his people who for so many generations were under the thumb of godless rulers to once again recognize that God had made provision for their care through a righteous and merciful king. But like rain falling once again on a land that had been scorched by years and years of drought, the coming of Messiah represented a radical relief to a people who had experienced the consequences of the rebellion for so long. And so due to, during this time of dryness, there would be no king in the land. And then secondly, during this season, the northern kingdom will not experience the blessing of true orthodox worship. And there's an interesting coupling here in the words that are expressed in the fourth and fifth verses. Both the legitimate means of worship would be lost for time in the northern kingdom and the illegitimate means of worship, which they tried to replace the legitimate means with, will also be lost for a time. And so we're told there will be no sacrifice. 
And that's true because the northern kingdom shunned the temple in Jerusalem. They tried to distance themselves from the southern kingdom. And so they, they shunned the, the sacrifices that were there to bring down to the southern kingdom. They weren't fulfilling their obligations covenantally with God by refusing to go there. But they also lose the, the sacrifice of the pillars. In the place of Jerusalem, they had built these false pillars, these idolic places of worship, and their people had gone to worship there. Pillars shared with gods like Molech and, and uh, the other gods I can't remember right now. Baal and the ashram. And so these illegitimate means of worship would also be brought down. So there would be no good worship in the northern kingdom. The ephod was a symbol of the priestly service that was rendered unto the, the Jews by way of God's command. They were to be Levites, uh, and those who served as priests were to come from the, la- the line of Aaron. We know that after Jeroboam took over the northern kingdom and separated from the southern, they stopped ordaining people according to the Aaronic line. In the north, they tried to make priests from whatever tribe wanted to make a priest, or they tried to make priests from Levites that were not from the Aaronic line, and that was a false way of worship, and so that would be stripped away from them. And then lastly, the household gods, which had become popular among those northern Israelites as they worshipped Yahweh uh, out of one side of their mouth, but then worshipped these other false gods with these little, little statues and idols that they brought into their own homes. Those two would fail them and would be, would be cast away. So all of this false worship would leave the people dry and in need for better worship. Hosea prepares his countrymen in the north to embrace this punishment, but also grounds them in the promise that the punishment will not last forever. As New Covenant believers, friends, we have evidence of its fulfillment. In Romans 11, the the chapter that I spoke about earlier about the grafting in, verse 1, it says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? Verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at that present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Throughout the roller coaster, of history between God's people and God. The people have failed their covenant. They've been restored. They have failed their covenant. They have been restored. But God has never lost track of who is his. And he has never forgotten the promise that he had every intention of fulfilling in Christ and has since fulfilled through the work of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is our hope, friends. That it was the hope of Israel back then. It is now the fulfilled hope that we cling to. Let us worship and praise God for this great and mighty love that he gives to us, this redeeming love that we see a picture of in the relationship between Homer, uh, Hosea and Gomer. Please have a word of prayer with me. God, we thank you for this day. and We pray that you would strengthen our hearts as we think of your word and the grace that comes to us by it. Help us, God, to live with a sense of awe and wonder and appreciation for the love that you have loved us with. Lord God, let us give all the glory and the honor and the praise to Christ who was willing to condescend and come to be with us. He is holy and good, and we praise you for his provision and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.